6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his session entitled, The Passion Week. Six trials. Every one of them, every detail of every trial is illegal. It's illegal. Interesting. The illegalities. The binding of a prisoner before he was condemned was illegal. He's bound. That's illegal. The judges participated in the arrest of the accused. That was illegal. No legal transactions, including a trial, could be conducted at night. This is a kangaroo court, as we would call it, going on in the middle of the night. While an acquittal could be pronounced the same day, any other verdict required a majority of two and had to come on a subsequent day. That was in the law. That was the law. They didn't obey any of this. No prisoner could be convicted on his own evidence. And of course, that's the only evidence he had. That's what finally does it. When the high priest finally said, I adjure thee, they couldn't get the, they couldn't get the witnesses to agree. I adjure thee by the living God, tell us who you are. Well, he's under oath now. That's the only time he makes a statement. Is when he's under oath. Jesus, you know, you said it, buddy. Next time you see me, I'm coming and, and you, you know the sin. So it's interesting. No prisoner can be convicted on his own evidence. That evidence convicted him. And incidentally, the evidence that convicted him was his claim that he was the creator. That's staggering. It was the duty of the judge, by the way, to see that the interest of the accused was fully protected. You've got to be kidding. This is, a, this is a railroad job, as we might call it. The use of violence during the trial was apparently unopposed by the judges. They slapped him around. The judges sought false witnesses against Jesus. The judges sought these false witnesses, tried to get them to agree. They couldn't agree. In a Jewish court, the accused was to be assumed innocent until proved guilty by two or more witnesses. These ideas, by the way, you notice, have their roots biblically. They're cherished rights that we try, clumsily perhaps, we try to imbue in our uh, 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 jurisprudence, our legal system. But in any case, they're certainly violated here. No witness was ever called for the defense. <laughs> except his own self-incriminating in their mind. By the way, the court lacked the civil authority to condemn a man to death. That's why they had to make these arrangements to see Pilate. And seeing Pilate took special arrangements. They couldn't just go see Pilate. I mean, he's the personal representative of the ruler of the world. He happens to be in town. They have to go to him to get done what they want to get done. It was illegal to conduct a session of the court on a feast day. And it's certainly a feast day. It's, you know, it's Passover, for crying out loud. The sentence is finally passed in the palace of the high priest, but the law demanded that it 
be pronounced in the temple in the hall of hewn stone. They didn't do that. It was in, his, it was, uh, in, the, pal- in the high priest's own palace. And also the high priest tears his garment. That was against the law. He was never permitted to tear his official robe. That's in Leviticus 21, verse 10. And by the way, without his priestly robe, he couldn't have put Christ under oath. Can't have it both ways. If he put him under oath, he must have had his priestly robe, but he couldn't do that. If he had his priestly robe, he wasn't supposed to tear it. There is a habit of tearing a robe under certain things, but he's, he wasn't allowed to. That was against the law. Let's talk about Pilate. Pilate tried hard to get out of this. I'm, I feel very sympathetic to Pilate's dilemma, understanding the pressures on an administrator. Jesus Christ was pronounced innocent by the personal representative of the ruler of the world. I find no fault in this man, he declares to the crowd. But he tries to get out from under this. He passes it off to Herod. Then he tries to pass it off to the crowd. Every year we let a prisoner go, and you know, he, he thought surely they would... They've got this murderer that's a rival here. But certainly they're going to take this guy that... Though so many, you know, apparently follow him. He tries to pass off the crowd, but they've been bribed and, and, and managed by the experts. Prisoner of choice is released. You want Barabbas or your king? Kind of, kind of interesting that he, he, he declares him a king. Well, you know the story. Barabbas is an interesting story. You need to understand Barabbas. We don't do much studying of Barabbas here. Understand, he stood under the righteous condemnation of the law. He did not declare any basis of being innocent. He's guilty. He knows he is. He knew that the one that was about to take his cross and take his place was innocent. Barabbas knew he was himself guilty. He knew this guy that was being accused that was going to take his place for freedom was innocent. He knew that. He knew that Jesus Christ was for him a substitute. From his point of view, Christ was substituted into his shoes. Otherwise, he would have been condemned. But because they picked him, he's freed and Christ is condemned. They switch places in a sense, okay? And he knew that he had done nothing to merit going free while another took his place. So get the, I want you to understand Barabbas' situation here. They're changing places. The murderer's bonds, his curse, his disgrace, and his mortal agony, that's Barabbas's, were transferred to the righteous Jesus. While the liberty, the innocence, the safety and the well-being of the Nazarene became the lot of the murderer. You understand how they switch places? Barabbas has installed all the rights and privileges of Jesus Christ, while the latter ends up on all the infamy and horror of the rebel's position. The delinquent's guilt and cross became the lot of the just one, and all the civil rights and immunities of the latter were property of the delinquent. Where are you and I? We are in Barabbas' shoes. We're not innocent. We know we're guilty. We have nothing to justify anything but the punishment that we deserve. Jesus is innocent, and we are switching places. We gain him, his situation, and he endures ours. That's what's going on here. 
Barabbas is more than just a bystander here. He's a representative, you and I. Okay, so we get to the crucifixion itself. And thanks to Mel Gibson's work, many people are critical of some of its, some of its uh, colorful overtones, but at the same time, it's an incredible piece of work to which we're indebted. Now, to refresh your memory from Genesis chapter 22, you may recall that Mount Moriah is a ridge system starting at Salem or Ophel near the base, about 600 meters above sea level. You get up to the Temple area, which is a, is, is a saddleback, the thrashing floor of Aruna. But the ridge continues up uphill. The bedrock goes up till 777 meters above sea level, a place called Golgotha. And uh, the place that Abraham offered Isaac, I believe, is the exact spot that, the, that G, the another father offered his son as an offering for sin. There's a Jewish tradition that Abram offered Isaac at the Temple Mount, but that's just a Jewish tradition. It doesn't seem to conform to either the topography or the Scripture. It's at Golgotha that I believe Abram offered Isaac, and it's at Golgotha that Jesus Christ is offered on our behalf. Old Testament prophecies. We went through a lot of these in the previous session about being born of David's family, born of a virgin, born of Bethlehem, and, and live in Galilee, raised in Nazareth, announced by Elijah like Herald, John the Baptist, the massacre of Bethlehem's children, the jubilee to the world, the mission that included the Gentiles, his healing ministry and teaching through parables. All that we recovered, covered in the last session. Now we have these whole series of these just in this week. The triumphal entry is because he'd be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. He'd be like a smitten shepherd, his, his flock being scattered. He'd be given vinegar and gall, the psalmist tells us. They would cast lots for his garments. The very vocabulary is quoted. It's like it's following a script from Psalm 22. His side would be pierced. Not a bone would be broken. That was a specification in Exodus for the Passover lamb. It's also in Numbers 9 and Psalm 34, and it was also fulfilled by Jesus Christ. A Roman soldier was ordered to break the legs, and this guy refused his orders. He got to Jesus Christ and threw up a spear in the side instead. Did he know he was fulfilling prophecy? I don't think so. Was he fulfilling prophecy? Absolutely. Absolutely. He'd die among malefactors, and indeed he did. His dying words were foretold. He would be buried by a rich man, and he'd rise on the third. All this stuff is written in the, in the Tanakh, the Old Testament. And res his resurrection be followed by the destruction of Jerusalem. That's in Daniel 9, 11, and also in, uh, in 12. And of course, Jesus amplifies that also. He was crucified on a cross of wood. Yet he made the hill on which it stood. What held him to that cross? It wasn't the nails. Here's the Creator hanging there. He could have at any time said, enough already, I'm out of here. No nails could hold him if he didn't want them to. What held him to that cross is his love for you and me. Staggering, staggering thing. My friend uh, Joe Foch from Philadelphia, we were together in, uh, in, in uh, Yorkshire, England, and, and Joe gave a message that he doesn't give very frequently. There was an incident in his life where his son, one of his sons, 
was seriously in need of emergency care in the hospital. We get to the hospital, they got a lot of harassment by filling out forms, and <laughs> he admits his witness wasn't too good. As he explained to them, if they don't get take care of him, they're going to need emergency care. <laughs> anyway, as he described the agony of a father in his anxiety over his son, he pointed out something that few of us think about, probably. We focus on the agony of Jesus Christ hanging on that cross, as so dramatized, at least the physical aspects are dramatized in the movie. Can you imagine the grief of the Father as He watches them spit on His Son and beat Him and insult Him? The forbearance of the Father is astonishing to reflect on in this whole scenario. Imagine a father having to endure that being done to his son, yet knowing if he interferes, he'll blow the mission. An interesting thing occurs when Pilate is there in John 19. It says, Pilate wrote a title, or titlon is what it actually is, and put it on the cross. I'm interested in this. It wasn't Pilate's servant or his assistant. Pilate personally, apparently, put this title on the cross. And notice what Pilate said. The writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Now that, first of all, intrigues me that Pilate is fluent in those three languages. It's written in Hebrew because he's on duty in Judea, so he learned to speak and write Hebrew, apparently. He's also fluent in Greek, as everyone was in that world, because that was the standard commercial language. He's also obviously competent in Latin because that was the official language of the Roman Empire. As the years go by, Latin will begin to supplant Greek in many places, but still. What's interesting, Pilate wrote this personally. I think this is interesting for a number of reasons. Let me show you a surprising one. When you and I miss the point, there again the priests and the Pharisees come to our rescue. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Notice, they're willing to say, if he says, I am the king of the Jews, they're happy with that. That's surprising, isn't it? What are they upset about? What's the difference? Whatever the difference is, Pilate did what he did deliberately. He answered, What I have written, I have written. He's not about to budge. Now you and I, as we watch this, can't figure out what's the difference. I'll show you the difference. Here's what Pilate wrote. He wrote it in Hebrew, right? Remember, Hebrew goes from right to left, right? He wrote, Yeshua Hanatzerai Vemelech Yehudin. That in Hebrew will be four words. 
with four initial letters. The initial letters of those four words is a yot, a he, a vav, and a he, the unpronounceable name of God. Now, well, yeah, who is right? Now, you could conclude from this that Pilate is authenticating Jesus Christ's deity here. I might not go that far. But clearly he knew that it was the habit of the Jewish leadership. They love acrostics. Many of the Psalms are acrostic. The Jewish leadership loved word games. They always took great stock in the first, you know, in what they call acrostics. Pilate is deliberately writing this as an acrostic of the of, of Yahuwave, uh, 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 as the Jews might say, or Yehovah, or Yahweh, or however you want to pronounce it. It's the unpronounceable name of God. Either he was just doing this to tweak them, probably upset that these guys put him in this spot of having to be entangled in this controversy, or maybe, just possibly, he may have had insights that go beyond what we generally accredit to him. He was profoundly impressed the way Jesus conducted himself personally. Jesus pointed out to him, you have no power of me unless God gave it to you. I mean, he, his, his, that whole interview with Jesus, out of which Je he brings Jesus out to the crowd, says, I find no fault in this man. What a statement! How simple it would have been for him to say, fine, you know, kill this imposter or whatever. No, I find no fault. He wanted him off. Now his wife was telling him in dreams, of, hey, you're dealing with something here that's bigger than you think it is. Now there's another insight that comes forth, and I'll show you that too. I, 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 it would not I have no evidence of this. There may be documentation to the contrary of what I'm about to tell you. But I personally will not be surprised if when I get to heaven I meet Pilate. I wouldn't be surprised that the ordeal of that day, when coupled with subsequent reflection, and maybe other reports he hears, would cause him to suspect that Jesus Christ really is who He claimed to be. And if that's true, it's possible, I don't know if I have any evidence, that He might have come to faith. It wouldn't surprise me if we meet Him there. I feel very much for Pilate, because I understand the, having been in those kinds of predicaments, someone that's in charge and has administrative responsibilities, often gets torn with a decision he has to make. And he was in a tough spot. And he's there, his job from his boss was to keep the peace. And he tried hard to try to do that and couldn't. Now there is an unrecorded conversation with Pilate that I want to touch on. As you may know, Joseph of Arimathea comes to Pilate the next day to beg, the, or that evening actually, to beg the body of, of, of Jesus Christ. That tells you a great deal about Joseph of Arimathea. We do know from a lot of indications he was a very powerful person, very rich, one of the most powerful guys in the earth. In fact, the very fact that he can approach Pilate tells you he had stature. What's even more astonishing, Joseph was in hiding. Uh, the, the scripture says that he was, the way it's recorded in your Bible, he was secretly a follower of Jesus. That's a mistranslation. The Greek word there, if you change one letter, you have to change one letter to make it, you know, a, a, an adverb. In the sentence, in the Greek, it's an adjective. It should be translated, he was secreted as a disciple of Christ. Meaning he was in hiding. He wasn't just secretly, he was undercover. He had to hide because they were going to try to kill him. He had defended Jesus before the Sanhedrin on a previous occasion. 
That's another reason why Pilate was probably startled that he shows up. But he certainly has access to Pilate. And he begs the body. That tells you a second thing. about Joseph Arimathea legally apparently had to be the next of kin. It was Roman law, and maybe Hebrew law, that the next of kin had the responsibility of disposing of a body, even of a criminal. No one, not, not, not just anyone could go and get the body. It had to be the, next, the one rep responsible. And Joseph Arimathea apparently was the next of kin. So he had personal access to the procurator, and he was the next of kin. Pilate was surprised. Now what you don't read in the scripture, but I have it on good authority, what Pilate said to Joseph Arimathea, I don't understand. You've got this brand new tomb for your family, and you're going to give it to this criminal? And Joe says, oy vey, it's just for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm indebted to Chuck Smith for that apocryphal story. I have it on good authority because Chuck wouldn't say so if it wasn't true. Um, so it's just for the weekend. It's just a little toss away for you. But I do. What what uh, did happen the next morning is the the scribes and Pharisees came to him. Chief priests came to him and said, "Sir," speaking to Pilate. We remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. You know, it's interesting, the disciples didn't get it. Jesus told them several times, on the third day I'm going to rise from it. They, it didn't register. The only people that understood it were his enemies. They knew, they were expecting him to rise the third day. And also some women. They understood. The disciples didn't get it until later. Anyway, they, they say after three days, he... They're, they're, that was the boast that they're afraid of. He said, Command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. I think that's an interesting mark. They're admitting that it was a mistake, what they did so far. See, they didn't plan to do it on, this, on the holiday, but it all went, from their point of view, pretty sour. And I love Pilate's response. Notice what he says. Pilate said to him, You have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. I love that phrasing. Do you hear? Do you hear in his words a certain cynicism? I don't think Pilate was surprised when, he just, when his own soldiers come and say, By the way, he's gone. I mean, Pilate, I suspect, was not surprised with the resurrection. You have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. You know, I dare you, so to speak, almost. You hear it in there. A taunt, if you will. You have your way. Make it as sure as you can. Well, okay. So we get to this incredible day. He is risen. He is risen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The most important validation in the history of the universe. Now, just to review a little bit, you may recall when we were in Genesis, the ark came to rest on the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, the mountain of Zerarit. That's when the new beginning starts under Noah, remember, in, Acts, I mean, in Genesis chapter 8. Why did the Holy Spirit give you that detail? I mentioned then at, the, at that time, when you're normally, if you're a normal, normal well-adjusted person, the ark rests in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat, you read on. But if you're into one of my Bible studies, you are no longer 
qualified uh, as a normal, well-adjusted human being. You remember that I made this ridiculous remark that every detail in the Scripture is there deliberately by design. Why did the Holy Spirit want you to know that the ark came to rest on the 17th day of the seventh month? I mean, who, why is that important? Well, you, as you know, the Jews have two calendars. The civil calendar is Tishri in the fall, Rosh Hashanah, the, the new year. It's a, typically in our September time period, roughly. The religious year is in, starts in the spring because of Exodus 12. When God ordains the Passover, He says to Moses, This month, that is the month of Nisan, shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. And that means the Jews have two calendars. The Genesis calendar, the old calendar, is the one they celebrate in a civil sense. Rosh Hashanah is in Tishri in the fall, first month. The seventh month is to them Nisan. But since the Exodus, since the Passover is ordained, the religious year starts with Nisan and it rolls around so that Tishri is the seventh month of the religious year. Do you get the picture? Okay. So, here's the situation. He's crucified on the 14th of Nisan. He's in the grave how long? Three days. That means his resurrection occurs on the 17th of Nisan. Nisan being the seventh month of the Genesis calendar. So God's new beginning on the planet Earth for Noah was on the anniversary in advance, in anticipation, of our new beginning in Jesus Christ. I think that's significant. I think it's fascinating. It demonstrates God seems to love to deal in very precise ways. I never use the word approximate and God in the same sentence. Well, there are a lot of appearances of the, after the resurrection. Mary Magdalene sees him first, early Sunday morning. I'll come back to that one. Other women that morning. Two on the Emmaus Road that afternoon. We talked about that briefly. Peter sees him sometime that day. The eleven see him that night, but without Thomas. A week later, actually eight days later, the eleven see him with Thomas, and we have that famous confrontation. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.